welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Giles from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. This week, we have two really interesting interviews about very different topics. Welcome to Physicians Weekly. I will start with the second interview. The 2022 American Society of Clinical Oncology, better known as ASCO, their annual meeting was held between the 3rd and the 7th of June, 2022 in Chicago, Illinois. One of the most covered topics talked about in the hallways, and you actually may have read about it in the newspapers, was about precision treatment in aggressive breast cancer. It all started about 24 years ago when a drug called Herceptin changed how doctors treat breast cancer, and its approval in 1998 made it possible to target the aggressive breast tumors tied to a gene called HER2. Other drugs quickly followed Herceptin, and over the years since then, you know, they've really substantially improved survival for people with aggressive breast cancer. So fast forward a quarter of a century later, another shift in treatment could be on the horizon. And at the ASCO meeting, researchers presented the results, proving that for the first time, another targeted medicine, not Herceptin, but based on that molecule called HER2, called Trastuzumab Drexican, but everyone calls it TDXD for short, can help metastatic breast cancer patients whose tumors express even only low levels of HER2. And because now many more patients may soon be eligible for treatment with TDXD or trastuzumab drexdecan, we wanted to focus on the safety follow-up analysis of the randomized phase 3 Destiny Breast 3 trial, which reinforced the risk-benefit profile of trastuzumab drexdecan TDXD compared with another medicine on the market called trastuzumab emtanzine in patients with HER2-positive unresectable metastatic breast cancer. We were able to speak with Professor Giuseppe Corigliano from the University of Milan in Italy when he was at ASCO to learn about the latest results. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. But first, we speak with Sonia Sloan, MD, better known as hashtag orthodoc, who has established herself as a force to be reckoned with in a male-dominated world of orthopedic surgery. She's licensed to practice medicine in several states, and she travels the country as a locum tenens physician. For those of you who aren't familiar with that term, that refers to someone who does not hold a long-term permanent contract, but works on a week-to-week or day-to-day or month-to-month manner. There's a shortage of doctors in America, and all types of facilities need locum tenens providers to relieve physician burnout, maintain patient satisfaction, and stay fully staffed during busy times or while searching for another replacement. Furthermore, locum tenens helps more people see a provider and receive care, and it's offsetting the physician shortage in underserved areas in particular, especially rural communities, VA hospitals, and Indian health service facilities. A 2021 survey indicated that 72% of healthcare facility managers are seeking locum tenens physicians, and that is a number that's way up from the 47% in 2016, and twice that from 2012, which was at 39%. Physicians Weekly's senior editor, Marta Kelly, interviews Dr. Sloan, and it's a great interview. Dr. Sloan, by the way, is the author of a book that, which is titled The Rules of Medicine, colon, A Medical Professional's Guide to Success. Enjoy listening. Today I have with me Sonia Sloan, MD, who is a traveling orthopedic surgeon, a locum tenens physician, 
author, speaker, and a mom. She's also the orthopedic surgery resident at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Welcome. Thank you. Dr. Sloan, what made you become a locum tenens physician? What was your impetus? So uh, I finished my residency in 2006, so I'm, I'm sort of old school. I'm, uh, you know, 15 years in the game now. I was the first black female orthopedic surgery uh, resident in Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, which is only one of the top 10 in the country at the time. I finished and I got pregnant my last year. So remember, it takes about 14 to 15 years to make an orthopod, meaning four years of, of medical school, four years of residency, and then basically a year of research, a year of general surgery, and five years of orthopedics. So after 14 years of that delayed gratification and just wanting to have life and not being in the hospital all the time, I chose a, a career path, which was locums at the time, that gives me options. It gives me an opportunity to do some other things. And so it's stuck. And here I am 15 years later, still doing it. And uh, really at the forefront now with the push about people wanting quality of life, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you briefly explain how you got interested in orthopedics and you know, what was your desire to pursue that field? Yeah, I grew up in Denison, Texas, small town, USA. I went to Texas Tech University, which was 25,000. My hometown was only 23,000. So when I tell you I had not been exposed to a lot, it was really about my mom, who was a nurse, who influenced me with the interest in medicine because I grew up with that. But I do recall never seeing a Black doctor. I never saw a woman doctor. And it wasn't until I got hurt my senior year in high school, I was cheerleader, track star, gymnast, and injured my knee and started to have to see one of the orthopods. And um, he was such a nice person. He was realistic and laid back and he made it, you know, seem so fun in the sense of, okay, we'll, you know, we'll fix this and we'll get you better. And I liked that instead of the chronicity of what I saw with what my mom did, which was uh, nephrology and, and dialysis and that people were always sick. So it was something about the healing process and being done. And I, that really stuck with me as far as medicine. And then they told me that um, there were no women in orthopedics or a woman couldn't do it. And so it's one of those challenges. As soon as you hear, what, I can't do something, you better believe that's exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> As a mom and a physician, how is your work-life balance affected by your locum tenens and your work in general? Oh, yeah, locum tenens is, has been a godsend, but it's also had its, you know, caveats as well, because uh, early on, the kids were small enough that I would take them with me and had a nanny that would travel with me for longer stints. I chose jobs that were not too far from home. Uh, so Louisiana is close to Texas, and my dad was in Baton Rouge, and I took a job there for over a year that paid great money that I could literally take off the next year, you know. So as the kids grew older, I, I vowed not to do as much time away. So it went from two weeks to maybe just one week. Every now and then I'll do 10 days. But for the most part, now they're so so much older and more independent. It's not like mom has to be around the whole time. But Having that presence is really important so uh, I can pick options and when I can't miss football games or dance recitals or, you know, be present for like this week is a major testing in our school system. So I wanted to be home, you know, to cook breakfast, to give the hugs and kisses. So it gives me options. That's nice. That's nice. As an African-American woman, uh, you're part of a less than 1% of 30,000 orthopedic surgeons that are practicing in this country. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, we are at a tipping point. We're at a pinnacle of change, uh, not just because of things that have traversed the past few years with uh, racial climate in America, 
but also just where we are with women, uh, with minorities in general, and then specifically with African-Americans. Uh, when I came in in 06 and being the first, I didn't know I was the first. It wasn't until years later someone mentioned that I was the first. So it was not really about that. It was about being in the boys club and realistically just being a woman. Now it's the you know intersectionality of, of being a woman, being a black woman, uh, being now uh, I'm over 50. So an older black woman to say that, you know, how can we change and open the door for others to come along? And that studies have shown that uh, women are usually better as far as caregivers for patients, as well as surgeons as well. There's a recent study that was uh, even posted in Time a couple of years ago, um, but also that patients connect better with us and we are more inclined to listen and we're more inclined to be studious and very exact with our surgical skills. So it's not just about you know, diversifying, which is major, but it's also great for a patient. There was also a study that was done on the corporate side that specifically said, if you have a diverse workforce or people that are working for you, people make more money, companies make more money. And so it's not just beneficial for me and for generations to come, it's beneficial for the healthcare system as well. And tell me a little bit about the population you serve in New Mexico, Native American population. Yes, I love that population. Uh, it's a government contract with the Indian Health Services, which I'm on the Navajo Nation, the largest Native American reservation in the country. And let me just tell you, it's, um, they're destitute. It's, it's like very desolate. It's very isolated. It's very unforgiving. And this population, you have one side of the train tracks, literally uh, train tracks. And then you're looking at the reservation where you're not really allowed to go unless you have permission. There's Hogan's, which is their houses. Uh, multi-generational people that live in these in these homes that are very, very small, no running water, no electricity in some of these places. Most of it is, is uh, dirt. So therefore, if it's a rainy day or a snowy day, they don't come off the reservation because it's hard to, you know, for transportation. The hopelessness, you know, I mean, not, not all of them are hopeless, but there is a sense of hopelessness there that lends to a very, very high suicide rate, a very, very high domestic violence rate on both sides, male and female, as well as mortality is, is less. You know, people are, are definitely dying younger, alcohol, diabetes. So in that sense, my heart goes out to, to in the sense of thinking the closest population to African-American population with what we've had to go through with the um, medical apartheid in America. Uh, is is phenomenal. And so to be there in the forefront to help and to be a reoccurring face for them lends to credibility and reliability for them. And they trust me, I have now treated two, three generations, you know, the grandma, the mom, and the kids now. And so uh, I'm known throughout the community. And it's, you know, sometimes funny, because you have to remember, there's still a generation that don't trust you know, but I, I appreciate it. And I am really humbled by being able to be there and partake in their care. What types of surgeries are most common among this population? Trauma, lots of trauma. Uh, one that, that's in the middle of Interstate 40, uh, heading towards Arizona, northeast, uh, northwest corner. So the four, four corner area, 
So a lot of drinking and driving, so lots and lots of trauma. The other thing, which is somewhat comical to me because I live in Houston, Texas, is, you know, when it comes in and patients like, oh, she fell and twisted her ankle because, you know, she was butted by the goat or they had the fractured dislocation of the fingers or the wrist because their hair got stuck in the sheep's wool as they were shearing. Um, the shoulder dislocation because they were roping, you know, the bull. And it, so it, those kind of things that are like, yeah, I wouldn't see that in Houston necessarily. Maybe the roping the bull, you know, at the rodeo time, but um, some of the other livestock you know, injuries and that kind of thing uh, are definitely keen to that area. <laughs> well, this, this wraps up our interview. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Next, calling in from the American Society of Clinical Oncology happening in Chicago, actually today as I'm recording this, we speak with Professor Giuseppe Corigliano about the safety follow-up analysis of the randomized Phase 3 Destiny Presto 3 trial. And the label for trastuzumab TCAM was updated by the FDA in May 2022, just last month, based on superiority for the agent compared with adotrastuzumab emtanzine in the Destiny Breast 03 study. In the primary analysis, the median progression-free survival had not yet been reached with trastuzumab TCAM, compared with 6.8 months for trastuzumab emtanzine, which equates to a 72% reduction in the risk of progression or death with the novel antibody drug conjugate, and that's a hazard ratio of 0.28 and a highly significant p-value. The 12-month progression-free survival rate was 75.8% with trastuzumab drexican versus 34.1% with TDM1 or trastuzumab imtanzine. Despite the convincing efficacy data, breast cancer specialists have been watching the long-term safety outcomes with great interest. And in particular, interstitial lung disease or ILD is a concerning and potentially serious adverse event. Let's talk to Professor Curigliano. Professor Curigliano, thank you so much for joining us today. Could you tell me a little bit about, at ASCO, I know that the follow-up analysis of the randomized phase three Destiny Breast 03, what were the data there? Well, you know, it was not an update on the on the overall survival and progression-free survival that was confirmed. There was uh, specifically an analysis of safety. And finally, according to the data presented, uh, the most common toxicity was gastrointestinal toxicity, and specifically nausea. And fatigue was another side effect that was reported in the context of the trial. With a long-term follow-up, there was no new case of grade 4 and 5 ILD. So it means that finally the incidence of inflammatory lung disease overall is less than 10% of grade 1 and 2 and 3, and no fatal event has been observed. This is an important information, I believe, because we know that some people may raise concern about ILD for patients using trastuzumab deruxtecan, but in the Destiny 3, we clearly demonstrated that if you recognize early this type of toxicity and if you manage it, you don't have a fatal evolution. This is an important study, I believe. We know better which is the safety profile of trastuzumab deruxtecan. Beyond nausea and fatigue, we have also alopecia. Uh, but this is a so impressive drug in terms of therapeutic activity that, in my opinion, is really practice-changing. And when we compare that to prior third-line experience with TDXT, do you see anything new? 
No, no, there is absolutely nothing new. Uh, what we know is confirmed. Okay, that's excellent. Could I ask you to tell your physician colleagues about how the best to manage the nausea, vomiting, but also the ILD as side effects of this treatment? You know, you, you should do, of course, antiemetic therapy. Uh, the optimal antiemetic therapy, of course, uh, should include uh, the same treatment that you usually use uh, to manage toxicity of anthracyclines or cisplatinum. In my personal experience, so uh, I use a prepitant only in case uh, uh, the, the second-generation drugs are not able to control nausea, but I believe you can manage absolutely this type of side effect. Regarding uh, the ILD, of course, high-dose steroid is the best way to manage them, so you have to stop treatment and then to start high-dose steroids in order to recover the inflammatory lung disease. And then do you pick up treatment again after that? Uh, no, usually it depends on the type of grade uh, that you observe. If you have a grade 3, you should stop treatment. In case of grade 1, uh, sometimes I restarted again the treatment. Um, I also wanted to ask you about the quality of life data or the patient-reported outcomes that were also reported as breast. Could you touch upon that data? Yes, of course, uh, the, the, the data, of course, have been reported at Esmo breast when comparing uh, trastuzumab, the Ruxtecana, to TDM1, you don't have a deterioration of quality of life. So quality of life is uh, similar almost between uh, TDM1 and trastuzumab deruxtecan. But for some variables, like pain control, like uh, emotional status, like physical status, the arm of trastuzumab deruxtecan is better than the arm of TDM1. Another important observation uh, is... Um, time to physical deterioration that is uh, longer in the trastuzumab deruxtecan arm and time to first hospitalization that was close to 70 days uh, for TDM1 and almost uh, 200 days for trastuzumab deruxtecan. So it means really that you make a difference when you compare uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan to TDM1. My final question is just to put this in a broader context, where do you see TDXD going in the future, and how are we going to be helping our patients with this with, with this regimen? You know, you should propose trastuzumab deruxtecan in the second line setting. So once a patient progresses to dual blockade, pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and taxane, the new standard of care should be trastuzumab deruxtecan. There is a revolution ongoing, of course, because uh, we listen to the data in their too low population. So we have really exciting times for our patients. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy your day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. Stay safe and stay healthy. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly.